There is only one good, knowledge, and one evil, ignorance. Socrates. Hello, I'm Mark Selleck, and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, Episode 7, The Archaic Age, A Rebirth. We have now come out of the other end of the Dark Ages, and into what is called the Archaic Age, which in our time we take to mean old-fashioned. But the word derives from the Greek word, archos, meaning beginning. This will be the beginning where many elements that have made classical Greece so famous will be developed and realised. We will look at the new peculiar political entity the Greeks will set societies upon, the idea of the city-state, independent from other city-states in Greece, but a shared culture. Coming out of the Dark Age and into this new period, colonisation would become widespread, with many of the Greek city-states sending colonists off in search of new land to settle. The Greeks during this period would go on to establish settlements all over the Mediterranean and further afield, at such places as modern-day Istanbul in Turkey, Nice in France, and Toronto in Italy, just to name a few. As we saw in the last episode, as the Dark Ages came to a close, there was a noticeable increase in the international relations during this time, and it would go on to dramatically influence many aspects of the Greek world as it further developed through the centuries. We also now start to get a picture of the lives of the people and the institutions that they were starting to develop throughout the Greek world. We also get hazy accounts of wars taking place that later Greek writers would talk about or allude to, though frustratingly the accounts do not provide enough detail to form a complete reconstruction of them. They are often brought up to explain or justify certain city-states' actions or motivations when dealing with contemporary events or ongoing rivalries. In this episode, I want to talk about these elements in general terms, showing what they are and the driving forces to get an understanding of them. As we move forward from this episode, we're going to start to move away from these generalised topics and we'll be focusing on specific events and people more often. The main reason is up until now, the information and evidence hasn't for the most part allowed us to be too specific, but now we are moving into a period where written accounts from ancient sources can allow us to look much closer. Some of what we talk about in the future episodes will tie into the elements we talk about today, such as when we look at the development of two of our biggest or most well-known players in the Greek classical world, Sparta and Athens. We will be devoting a number of episodes looking at the development of both of these city-states, up to the point of the beginning of the classical period. This episode, though, will serve to give us a foundation in these ideas that will make future stories of people and events much clearer. So let's get started on what was taking root in Greek society, now that they had come through the Dark Ages and left behind the kingdoms of Mycenae in Greece. With a new script now circulating throughout Greece and the art of writing taking hold, the Archaic Age would see some of the first fixed points in dating to be recorded. These fixed points would record events directly involving Greece and become very useful to historians. For example, in Athens starting in 683 BC, a practice started occurring which saw the name of the eponymous archon, the highest-ranked magistrate, giving his name to the year he was appointed, which would be recorded. Archons could only hold office for one year, so this allowed for a chronology to develop as the years passed by. One of the first recorded dates that can be pointed to in Greek history is that of the establishment of the Olympic Games in 776 BC. The date of the first Olympics is also considered by many historians to be a convenient demarcation point marking the end of the Dark Ages and the beginning of the Archaic Age. It has been seen as an appropriate point making this change, 
has again celebrated the coming together of all Greeks competing in excellence under peaceful conditions, which was in contrast to the general picture of the Dark Ages. Today's Olympics draws on the tradition of the ancient Greek games, though there were many differences. One of the biggest differences was that in ancient times, when the games were first established, competitors did not compete on behalf of a nation or a city, but represented themselves. Also, the games were not just an athletic competition, but poets and oral storytellers also performed to the public. Foremost, though, the Olympic festival was a religious one, in honour of Zeus, at the head of the Greek pantheon of gods. Although there were many other festivals celebrated that involved games, the festival at Olympia would become the most prestigious of them all. The site of Olympia on the Peloponnese housed the main sanctuary dedicated to Zeus on the mainland, establishing its strong religious ties to the festival. Also, the games were celebrated every four years on a continual basis for nearly a thousand years, seeing its legacy become stronger with each passing generation. A reason often seen that explains its success was the fact that Olympia lay in a region of Greece that was politically unimportant, so it was rarely exploited. Although the festival was more than an athletic contest, it's what seems to have drawn the most competitors and spectators. Some of the most popular events during the Olympics were the Stadion, a sprint of just under 200 metres, which was also one of the oldest events and where we get our word stadium from. The pentathlon was an event similar to the modern day concept, where an athlete competed in five different events. In ancient times, these events were discus, long jump, javelin, a foot race and wrestling. Later additions to the games were events that involved horses, such as horseback riding and chariot racing. In these events, though, it wasn't the rider or the driver that would win the race, but the owner of the horse. Contact sports were also popular, such as wrestling and boxing. The crowd favourite was known as the Pankration. Think modern-day UFC, but no rules. It was common for serious injuries to happen, and not unknown for deaths to have occurred during fights. Women were not entirely precluded from the festival. Married women were not permitted to attend at all, while unmarried women could be spectators. There was a separate festival which took place on another date devoted to Hera, the wife of Zeus. Not much is known about this festival, but it appears young unmarried women competed in athletic events during the festival. As we can see from the events listed, it seems they all would have developed out of what would have become common actions for a warrior or a soldier to undertake in war, making it likely that many of these events had their origins in exercises in military training for warriors. Though the Olympic festival had at its centre the ideas of unity and peace. They were a celebration of Pan-Hellenism, meaning all Hellas. Anyone of a Greek-speaking background could compete. It didn't matter what city-state a person was from, they were representing themselves, and all that competed were Hellenes. The festival took place over five days, with people travelling from all over Greece to Olympia, which would see travellers on the roads weeks before and after the festival. So what was enacted and adhered to by all was a sacred truce. Even during times of war, this truce was enacted for a month, which would gradually increase to two and then three months as time passed. Safe passage to and from the festival for all spectators and competitors would be observed by all the city-states across Greece. This notion of a city-state was also a new concept that would be matured during the Archaic period. Emerging out of the Dark Ages was the most distinctive political unit in Greece, the city-state or polis which is where we get our word politics from. In our modern world, we think of nation-states where we identify as a particular nationality, but back in ancient times, the nation of Greece didn't exist. What mattered was the city that you belonged to. 
with the kingdoms of the Mycenaean world dead and buried. Settlements within Greece were able to develop independently from each other without a larger political force incorporating them into a larger kingdom. Some 1,500 independent city-states were dotted around the Greek world and generally they were composed of an urbanised centre with land surrounding it, also considered part of it. To be a Greek or Hellene in the same respect that in modern times people identify with their nation was not of primary importance from a political perspective. A citizen of a city-state would firstly consider themselves an Athenian, Spartan, Corinthian or whatever city-state they belong to. Each polis would develop their own law codes, their own systems of governing and their own military to defend their polis. Each polis would also have different patron gods they would devote their cities to. For example, the patron god of Athens was the goddess Athena. The god or gods a city-state would devote itself to would almost always come from a larger Greek pantheon of gods that was part of the shared Greek religion. The common linkages of language, religion and social structures would play a part in the city-states recognising their shared culture with other Greek city-states as opposed to foreigners. Generally speaking, anyone from a land that didn't speak Greek were considered barbarians, a term that developed due to the Greek speakers unable to understand the bar 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 the foreigners were described as speaking, which the Greeks would then refer to them as barbarois. The physical structure of the city-state was not a new concept, as urbanised centres controlling the surrounding lands, such as that of Babylon and Nineveh in the Near East had existed for centuries. What was different, though, was the fact that these Greek city-states were not ruled over by powerful kings or controlled by larger empires. A completely different power dynamic emerged due to the vacuum created by the collapse of the kingdoms of the old in Greece. This is what made them different to the cities of the Near East, as it was the citizen body that really made the polis. Only males could engage in political activity, but women were still recognised as members of a polis and played a part legally, religiously and socially. Although many ideas and new technologies made their way into Greece from the Near East, including perhaps the physical structure of a city-state, the notion of citizenship seems to have developed independently, as it is difficult to find where it could have been imported from. Although the Greek city-states were fiercely independent from each other, their shared linkages would on occasion unite them in times of crisis, from outsiders, or in the Greek minds, the Barbarois. Even with the crisis at hand, competing interests of all the city-states involved threatened to destabilise any coalition that had been formed. The primary loyalty to one's polis was a concept that was to feature for the entire classical period, and arguably may have had repercussions for one's independence when encountering Macedon and Rome later in Greek history. It would seem the geography of Greece, which we have spoken about before, played a large part in so many city-states remaining independent and not forming into larger entities. This would also only allow a polis to reach a certain population level to stay sustainable. Most city-states in the archaic period had a population of a few hundred to a few thousand people, and if a polis was to exceed this, they needed to rely on consistent food imports from abroad. The most successful polis was Athens, and at its height it supported a total population of a couple of hundred thousand people, though this was the exception to the rule. As the city-state's population approached its upper limit, a process of colonisation was encouraged, which also goes a long way to explaining why there were so many cities that had emerged throughout the Greek world and even further afield. Colonisation done by the Greeks in ancient times wasn't the same as colonisation by empires and imperial powers of the 19th century of our own period. There were fundamentally two reasons for Apollos to decide to send out citizens to found a new colony. 
land shortages and population expansion. In most cases, after a consultation with an oracle, an expedition would be sent out of only males to a location decided upon, usually chosen for its economic potential, to initially found the new colony to where followers could make the journey later if the colony was successfully set up. Colonists would have had somewhat of an idea of the land that they were heading off to settle, but still would have been apprehensive of the reception they would have received when arriving at their intended location. Would they have to fight a population in the area to establish their colony? Could they engage in trading partnerships, or would the area be relatively uninhabited? To found a new city, the colonists would take with them the flame from the sacred fire of their mother city, or metropolis, which would become the sacred fire of the newly founded city. Although the colonists had been citizens of their mother city, the newly made city would become independent, but was still expected to side with the metropolis in times of war or risk being cast as disloyal. It is also interesting to note that not all colonies were state-sponsored, and many had been set up through private initiative, which traders and merchants would make a large part of the expedition. These were always motivated through economic means, and did not necessarily look at establishing their own colony, but would also become part of an existing one. The Phoenicians were also active colonists, who established the city of Carthage, which would become the arch-rival of Rome many centuries later. As well as Carthage, they had colonies dotted throughout the western Mediterranean, where many Greeks had also established a new home. State-sponsored colonisation found different ways in choosing who would become part of the expedition, from voluntary willingness, the selection of an adult male from every family, and even selecting undesirables from within the community. Whatever the method of picking out the colonists, it no doubt would have been a very anxious time as sea travel in ancient times was fraught with danger, and not to mention the fact that most who set out would begin a new life and not see their families again. The economic opportunities, sense of adventure and new beginnings may have helped alleviate some of these anxieties, while others would have just accepted their duty, while others would need further motivations to ensure their compliance with the polis's wishes. Here I want to relate a story that can be found in Herodotus's histories, as well as elements that can be found on an inscription that dates to the 4th century BC, known as the Foundation Oath. The Delphic Oracle had instructed a man named Battus from Thera, modern-day Santorini, to set out with an expedition and found a city at Cyrene, in North Africa, in what is now Libya. It appears that the polis of Thera was unable to support its growing population, and one male adult from each family was selected to take part in the expedition. The oath also relates that if anyone who was conscripted refused to go would be put to death, and further to that, anyone who aided them in avoiding the journey would also suffer the same fate. It had been arranged that the colonists had five years to set up a successful colony, and if the time had passed and they were unsuccessful, they could return without fear of punishment. The story goes that Battus and his followers attempted to settle but were unsure of what action to take when arriving in North Africa. They tried to return home but were threatened with violence, so then set sail once again and landed on an island off the coast and suffered hardship for two years. It appears further overtures were made to return, but Battus was instructed that the colonists had not achieved what they set out to do. Herodotus has Battus consulting the Delphic Oracle on what to do, where he receives an answer that he was not released from his obligation and that he had not landed in North Africa yet, where the agreed location for the colony would be. After Battus returned to North Africa proper this time, there are interactions that took place with people who lived in the area already, with Herodotus telling us of how the Libyans managed to convince Battus and his expedition to set up their colony that would not infringe on their own by leading them to a location without them seeing the best lands. The colony of Cyrene was eventually successfully established, 
and Battis would go on to lead it for 40 years. The explosion of colonisation began to slow down in the 6th century BC, but it is estimated that the number of Greek settlements throughout the Mediterranean had doubled from a few centuries earlier. The Italian peninsula and Sicily had a great deal of Greek colonies, to where the area was nicknamed Magna Graecia, meaning Greater Greece in Latin, and this is where we get our name for Greece from. The great city of Constantinople that became the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, and in modern times became Istanbul, started out as a Greek colony of Byzantium. With the growth of the city-states and the numerous colonies set up in the wider Mediterranean world, contact with other peoples and cultures increased with a larger range of diverse lands than had been experienced before. With the boom of colonisation in the early to mid-archaic period came the increase in interactions internationally. We spoke previously about the increase in contacts during the Dark Ages, but now these contacts were on a much wider scale, with colonies and regions with other cultures that then had a direct link back to its metropolis on the Greek mainland. This would allow a vast range of ideas, technology and art to travel into the mainland much faster and be exposed to more people than ever before. As we have spoke about in the last episode, these contacts brought into Greece one of the most important technologies, writing. The alphabet that would become the Greek alphabet was originally borrowed from the Phoenicians, who the Greeks were in contact with through their colonies in the Near East and through the many trade posts throughout the Mediterranean. The importance of this new alphabet was monumental. For the first time that we're aware of, the Greeks were eventually able to not only just record administrative documents, but convey passion and meaning in writing. This period saw two of the most famous poems being recorded, the Homeric poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Not only that, the Greek alphabet that was adapted from the Phoenicians would form the basis of the modern English alphabet that we use today. During this period also saw the return to constructing monumental stone structures, now that wealth had returned to the regions and city-states. The inspiration and trend in style that these structures and statues would take can be found in what has been constructed in Egypt. The colony of Nucratus had been established in Egypt and became an interchange of Greek and Egyptian art and culture. While the port of Heraklion on Crete, which was situated midway between the two, and a trading hub, would also play a large part in transferring these ideas back. What also developed from these colonies and interactions with many regions around the Mediterranean was the explosion of trade between Greece and the rest of the world that they were in contact with. This not only helped achieve the goal of being able to support a large population in some of the city-states back in Greece, but it is what drove so much of the innovation. To close out our discussion on relations with the wider Mediterranean world, I want to quickly talk about money, or more precisely coins and religion. Well, a particular religious shrine. The former would be transferred into Greece through strong international contacts, and the latter was a Greek site with international renown. Zeus, the father of the Greek gods, let two eagles go from the east and west. They then flew until they met, and this would become the navel or centre of the world according to Greek myth. This is where the town of Delphi was located, and the sanctuary where the oracle of Delphi sat. A woman known as the Pythia would enter a trance and priests would interpret her ramblings, which were supposed to be prophecies coming from the god Apollo, who among other things was known as the god of truth and prophecy. People and city-states from all over Greece would make the journey to seek advice from the oracle on all sorts of matters, such as, should I get married? Should I go on a sea voyage? Should we go to war? And should we start a colony there? Not only did people from all over Greece make the journey, but people and rulers from around the Mediterranean world would seek out advice due to the reputation of the oracle, 
One of Delphi's most famous international visitors was a ruler named Croesus, who we are going to meet in much more detail down the track. He was a ruler of the Kingdom of Lydia, which took up a large portion of Anatolia, where a number of Greek colonies had been established. Croesus would utilise the Delphic Oracle for advice on issues of the utmost importance, but perhaps focus too much on the oracles themselves, rather than the inscriptions found when entering to receive the prophecy. Know thyself, and nothing in excess. Croesus had developed a reputation for being the richest man alive, and an old saying would develop, as rich as Croesus. He would provide many great gifts to Delphi to honour the god Apollo and seek favourable prophecies. According to Herodotus, Croesus's kingdom of Lydia was the first to mint gold and silver coins, though perhaps a generation or two before Croesus's rule. Due to the many Greek colonies located along the coast of the Lydian kingdom, their interactions within the kingdom, as well as the extensive trade networks to the Greek mainland, it wouldn't be long before the Greeks themselves started developing their own system of coinage. As we can see, just from these few examples, the international trade context that had increased in the archaic period led to great leaps in technology and ideas that would continue to develop further over time, and the Greeks' own legacy would be infused into them as they were shaped into becoming part of the Greek way. One of the most original ideas that grew out of the polis was the notion of citizenship, which seems to be at odds with how people lived in the Mediterranean world in the past. For the first time, people who were not part of the social elite would have some former say in the politics of their city-state. To be a citizen in the Greek world wasn't the same as what it is today. The majority of people living throughout Greece would have not been considered citizens of their city-state. We know that in Athens, to be considered a citizen, firstly, you had to be male and have a father who was also a citizen, though with time these requirements would slightly change. Although women were excluded from the franchise of citizenship, and it would take the poorest class for some time to gain the political voice that they would have in the classical age, it is important to remember this was a huge step forward, as it was unprecedented in the ancient world, and it was the beginnings of our notion of citizenship today. It is unknown where the idea of citizenship sprung from, but a couple of theories have been put forward. The first is based around the need for a city-state to defend itself. This defence relied upon the citizens themselves with the main part of the army made up of what were called hoplites. A hoplite was a soldier who wore a bronze helmet, breastplate and greaves, and they were armed with a spear and a round shield known as a hoplon from where they get their name. They fought in close order formations known as phalanxes, and all citizens were required to serve in the defence of their polis if required. We will go into more detail in future episodes about hoplites, but for now we will settle with this generalised overview. It has been suggested that in the early stages of hoplite warfare being developed, it was discovered by this new class that they had become essential to the polis and its defence to where they could start seeking more say in how the polis ran. It is also important to note that a hoplite was required to purchase their own armour and weapons, so the poor were unable to fight as hoplites. The poorer classes would also be given citizenship, so perhaps the lighter armed troops that accompany the hoplite army, which these poorer citizens would have been fielded as, were also eventually recognised as important parts of the defence of the polis also. Though in most ancient references to warfare, the main focus is normally placed on the hoplites themselves. The second theory has to do with how a polis was governed. As during the Dark Age and Archaic period, it was common to have a popular ruler in control of a polis. These rulers were known as tyrants. Though the word tyrant didn't have the same connotations as it does today, it basically referred to a ruler gaining power by irregular means. These irregular means were usually by gaining popular support and the most numerous of the population would have been the poor. 
When we get to the episode that looks at Athens more closely, we will see how the poorer populations were able to receive more political power. But perhaps this is how the non-elites in the polis first gained some political say. But like I said, in the future episodes, we will see the evolution of the politics in Athens, which is where most of the written sources focus on. Lastly, I want to touch on conflict in this period. We get accounts of regional conflicts that take place, such as with Sparta and Argos, and Athens and Aegina, which we will look at in the episodes on Sparta and Athens. A lot of these regional wars seem to be a result of relatively new city-states still jostling for power and control over regions, either for resources or trade, with areas becoming too small for multiple developing policies. But we also get a couple of references to what would appear to be major Greek conflicts involving alliances between multiple city-states. Frustratingly, the accounts give us nothing like the Greek-wide conflict of the Peloponnesian War, which would break out in 427 BC. Two of the conflicts that are brought up and also used to explain classical period tensions and alliances are that of the First Sacred War and the Lalantine War. The First Sacred War was the first of four, which would break out over a period of more than 200 years. All of the sacred wars revolved around the site of Delphi, being the most sacred shrine on the Greek mainland dedicated to Apollo. The first of the wars is supposed to have broken out in 596 BC and lasted just over 10 years. The shrine at Delphi was not supposed to be controlled by any one city-state and was available for all to travel to. The war is meant to have broken out over what is described as lawlessness by the city of Kira, who was robbing and harassing the pilgrims on their way to Delphi. A league was in place that helped administer the shrine, which was a collection of states from throughout Greece, known as the Amphidionic League. This league decided that they would intervene in matters and sent an army which defeated the city of Kira, whose lands around Delphi were made sacred and it was forbidden to cultivate or have animals graze on them. The war also saw one of the earliest examples of chemical warfare, when Kira was laid siege to. The league poisoned the water supply to the city by contaminating it with the roots of the hellebore plant. The setting up of the Pythian Games is supposed to have marked the end of the war, which began as competitions in the arts, such as poetry, painting, acting and music. It must be said, though, that most of the information that relates to this first war is related in works written some 1-200 to 200 years after the events, when the other sacred wars were taking place. This war, though, would set the foundation for the later wars, which, to be classed as sacred, were fought over issues of control with the sanctuary at Delphi. The Lelantine War is described by Thucydides as being exceptional, being the only war in Greece between the Trojan War and the Persian Wars of the early 5th century BC, in which allied cities, rather than single ones, were involved. It began like most conflicts in this period, though, over regional land disputes. On the island of Euboea, the city-states of Eretria and Colchis had been steadily growing over generations, with both seeking ways to feed their expanding populations. Between the two cities was a plain that was suitable for cultivation and would become the reason for hostilities between the two. I just want to point out here again that all the information that we have about this conflict comes from the multiple fragmentary sources that span some 900 years, so it is difficult to know how accurate the details are, but the conflict and what took place was looked back upon by later Greeks and would justify their reasoning and decisions with future events. We are told of a code that was in place that saw the use of ranged weapons as being outlawed for the use in the conflict, which seems to harken back to the warrior mentality of the Bronze Age. To further support this conflict of warriors, the fallen were supposedly given funerary rites, like found in the Iliad. One warrior's burial was found near Eretria, dating to around this period, where he had been cremated and buried in a bronze cauldron 
along with jewellery and golden items. But what made this conflict exceptional was the fact that many Greek city-states from the mainland and even others from the colonies joined in the war. It is unclear what turned this seemingly regional dispute into a major Greek-wide conflict, but later writers would draw comparisons with this war to the later Peloponnesian War, which engulfed all of Greece from 427 to 405 BC. It is unclear when the war broke out and how long it lasted, but dates of around the end of the 8th century BC are often alluded to. It also seems possible that the war may have had periods of peace before hostilities broke out again, as some accounts talk about more hostilities near the mid-7th century BC. Though as I have said, the accounts from most of the archaic period do not give us a complete narrative of these conflicts, and many are related some hundreds of years later. Often these later accounts are using old conflicts to justify contemporary events, though as we reach the end of the archaic period, the accounts of wars would start to become much richer with information, perhaps due to the art of writing further developing and written history coming into being. Many of the institutions and characteristics that we associate with the ancient Greeks were continuing to develop and evolve during this period. There would still be some way to go in certain areas, especially when politics was involved, and the systems arrived at could look very different from polis to polis. Though as we have talked about, they'd all be united by a common culture and language. But as we will see, as the series continues, this doesn't mean a nation of Greece would result from this. Many city-states would go on to form alliances with barbarians against their cultural brothers at different points. While for nearly 30 years, in the 5th century, an entire war was fought throughout Greece which saw Greek against Greek. We also need to remember that much of the picture that we get of this period, and most of Greek history, comes from Athens, whether the writers were Athenian or not. The works that we have today give us the best picture of Athens and Sparta, but references to others are dotted throughout, which still allow us to form a general picture of how Greek society was developing. We'll be staying in the archaic period for the coming episodes. This time though we'll be looking closer at two of the major players, Athens and Sparta. Most of what we know about Greek society comes from these two city-states, so we will look more closely into the institutions as they developed in each. Although both were part of the Greek identity, their societies and institutions seem to be light years apart. After we have dealt with Athens and Sparta, we will be introducing a non-Greek civilization into the mix, the Persian Empire, where we will look at their rise as they would become very important to the history of Greece. This will then set the stage for us to move into the closing stages of the Archaic period, and what is known as the Greek and Persian Wars. Thank you for your continued support. To receive updates and to be notified of new episodes, you can subscribe at castingthroughancientgreece.com. Also, you can follow the series on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece or on Twitter at Casting Greece. I hope you can join me next time for Episode 8, The Sons of Heracles. <laughs>